0: Opening verse to guide our thoughts tonight will be taken out of Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29, and I'll be reading out of the ESV. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. These are the words of God. Our Father, you are often more involved in our lives than we know. And you are more concerned about our works than we would like. Please grant it to us to know and accept that in addition to all that we are, we are your servants. And with this knowledge, we ask that you would give us a greater concern for how we render service in this world. As we consider our topic tonight, we ask if you would use it to that end. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, if you're just now joining us, Joint Heirs has been in a sermon series on the idea of stewardship. And as we've established, stewardship is the act of Managing something or taking care of something. This act entails the proper use or the profitable use of a particular asset. And as we've said before, if that asset will be used properly, we must understand what that particular asset is for. We began this series on the stewardship of knowledge, or the stewardship of teaching, and we continued on with the stewardship of liberties, stewardship of time, and so on. Tonight, we'll be considering a topic that is often misunderstood. For some, it's a topic that's relegated to frivolous things that entertain us, things that characterize celebrities and athletes. For others, it's something that they've exchanged for complacency and mediocrity. And unfortunately, even for the church, it seems to be something that's largely reserved for select activities within the four walls of the church without any concern for external witness. The topic we'll be considering tonight is the idea of talent. When I say talent, I'm referring to something that can be developed by natural means. And in the remainder of our time, we'll be considering how to steward such a thing. What I'm hoping we come away with is that talent is less about a unique thing that we often pay to see and more so about a level of excellence that anyone can pursue in anything that they do. Now, we all have common knowledge about talent. We may not be able to define it with words, but we know it when we see it. Talented people are individuals who are good at something. They know how to do particular things well, and we esteem them for that. Such people may play a particular instrument well, like we just heard. Or they, maybe they have athletic prowess. Or maybe the person knows how to build things or bake things or you name it. When it comes to the idea of talent, that's essentially what we're talking about. It's the ability to do something well. It's the exercise of a particular ability with skill. Now, the word talent has a long history, and we could trace its origins back to the language of the Greeks. Yet when the Greeks used this word talent, it wasn't in reference to one's abilities. When the Greeks used this word, it was in reference to a measure of money. In fact, it was a large measure of money. For those of us familiar with the parables of Jesus, you know that he had a parable that revolved around this very thing. The parable of the talents features three servants who were given a large sum of money. And in that parable, that large sum of money was called a talent. This was given to them by their master to steward on his behalf while he was away on a journey, as we read. The subtext of the parable was faithfulness with God-given resources, and the talents given to the servants symbolized the God-given opportunities to be productive for the sake of Christ. But over time, an interpretation of this parable became more and more prevalent, and it was the idea that that talents referred to in this parable referred specifically to natural abilities. And over time, the term talent was somewhat repurposed and was used in referenced to skilled abilities. And so now, if we observe a person who is skilled in a particular way, we say that such a person is talented. That's why we use the word talent the way we do now, when it comes to our understanding of talent today, there are some cultural myths associated with it. And one of the most frequent myths that I've heard about talent is this idea that people are born with raw talent. Right? You've heard it before. See someone who's a really good musician or top-notch athlete, and you hear someone say stuff like, "He's a natural." Or, she's got natural-born talent. Statements like this portray talent like some sort of superpower that people are born with. And over time, it just passively manifests itself in a particular fashion. But is that actually what talent is? I would argue no. Take any musician, any athlete, Any architect or artist or anyone who can do anything well and you'll find that one thing they have in common is that whatever skill they have is a skill that was developed over time Steph Curry didn't come out of the womb shooting threes from half court and your best actors and actresses had to practice the art of acting before they landed their best gig And every illustrator that you know started out drawing stick figures. Nobody is born with talent. People are born with potential. Talent, on the other hand, is something that is developed over time. Talent typically starts with our observations. Perhaps you see an activity that piques your interest and you decide to pursue it. Or maybe you observe a necessity of some sort that calls you to a certain set of skills and out of a genuine concern you seek to meet that need by learning those set of skills. Whatever the case, that observation leads to the pursuit of experience. Here a person develops the basics of whatever it is that they're trying to learn and in this experience. A person has gone from mere observation to learning what it's really like to carry out that particular task. Take basketball, for instance. If you want to learn how to play basketball, you won't get anywhere if you just sit there and admire the game. If you want to learn how to play basketball, you got to start playing basketball. And in the process, you acquire knowledge. You learn the rules of the game. You learn how to shoot the ball, you learn how to dribble, and how to work as a team, and other mechanics of the game. And as we all know, your experience doesn't result in talent. We acquire talent when, through our observations and experience, we develop skill. And skill comes by consistent practice of the proper mechanics. As we practice, we, we become more proficient at that particular skill. As we practice, we'll discover that we're not just developing competence, we're developing talent. Going back to basketball, I have experience playing the game. And as a result, I, I know a thing or two. I can dribble, I can do simple layups, and I have a basic understanding of how to play the game. But I'm not skilled enough to get on the court and start talking trash, right? And despite what my appearance may suggest, I am not adept at playing basketball. Now, I may not be talented at basketball, but it's not because I wasn't born with that talent. I'm not talented at basketball because I didn't commit to developing that talent. And that's partially because I was never all that interested in basketball to begin with. But a point I want to impress is that talent is not something that comes automatically. Talent is something that comes over time. It comes over time as one pursues excellence in that particular area of interest. If anyone wants to be talented at anything, they must pursue it. Now, a good question to ask at this point is, what does the Bible about talent. Is talent even a biblical concept? Well, if you're willing to grant our demythologized understanding of talent, namely that talent is not some sort of superpower that people are just born with, and if you're willing to grant that the reality of talent is not restricted to the particular use of that term, then we might actually see the reality of talent when the Bible talks about it. In short, the answer to whether the Bible speaks about talent is yes. The Bible talks about talent. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word talent the way we do. When the Bible speaks about talent, it typically uses words like, like skill, as in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. There, David was described as a man who among other things, was skillful in playing the harp for King Saul. At other times, the word understanding may be used, not to describe mental activity, but a particular way that something is done. In Psalm 136, verse 5, God is described as one who made the heavens with such understanding. The way that God made the heavens is not just aesthetically pleasing or even functional, but it demonstrates that he knew what he was doing. He was creating it with a level of wisdom and expertise. Other versions of the Bible translate translated as skill. The heavens above, and by extension, everything in creation was made with a level of divine skill. Related to that, There are times when the Bible talks about skill or talent, if you will, as a form of wisdom. Now, we might initially kick against this idea until we learn that the Bible uses the word wisdom in different ways. And there are times when wisdom has different functions. Sometimes wisdom is used in reference to one's disposition toward God. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible tells us that wisdom starts with such a disposition. One fears God in the sense that they do not want to treat him lightly. Not only that, but such a person is also threatened with the prospect of disappointing him. So they strive to be on their best behavior in his presence. This is the fear of God. And we're told that such a person who fears God has the foundation of wisdom. In other instances, wisdom is used to refer to one's ability to make right decisions or just decisions. An example of this could be seen in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16 through 28, where King Solomon, being endowed with wisdom from God, was able to discern who was the true mother of a child between two harlots when they were disputing over the matter. Now, if you want to read further into that passage, I invite you to check it out on your own time. But in addition, there is another way that wisdom is used that bears particular relevance to our discussion tonight. In the Bible, we find that there are various passages where the word for wisdom refers to an ability to exercise a certain technical skill. And a clear example of this can be found in the book of Exodus. Shortly after God led his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, we read instructions given to Moses concerning a place called the Tent of Meeting. For us, we might know it better as their tabernacle. This tabernacle was essentially a structure in which God intended worship to take place. And for many of us, this is where our determination to read through the Bible begins to wane. Because the instructions given for the tabernacle and for the other articles of worship are rather extensive. Starting in chapter 25 of this book... God goes into great detail about how he wanted his tent and the associated articles to be constructed. But a detail I want to call your attention to is that this structure and everything involved with it required a skilled hand. God wasn't just asking for a little fort in the wilderness, something that only required a blanket and two chairs from the dining room. God wanted something stately, something fit for a place of worship, something well-constructed to reflect heavenly realities. And it wasn't just the tabernacle that God was concerned with. He was also concerned with the priestly garments. When it came to the priests, it wasn't a just come-as-you-are approach. God required particular attire And he wanted it to be made a certain way. And these garments weren't just functional. It wasn't just made to cover their nakedness. In Exodus chapter 28 verse 2, Moses is told that the priestly garments were made not just to cover nakedness, but for glory and for beauty. And when we look back at the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, The lampstands with the almond blossoms worked in it. The curtains with the cherubs embroidered in it. And the fact that many of these articles were overlaid with gold. We can see that glory and beauty was something that God was concerned about all along. But again, the glory and beauty that God intended these things to manifest required a skilled hand. Or to put it another way, the construction of these objects required a certain level of talent. And so we're told that the Lord called particular individuals to the task. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 1 through 3, we read about two men in particular, their names being Bezalel and Aholiab in reference to these men and others like them, we're told that God would fill them with the Spirit of God. See, this must be an important task if God thought it was necessary to impart his own spirit in that way. And just as an aside, this is one of the first places where a reference to spirit filling is given in the Bible. But not only that, these men were given ability, intelligence, knowledge, and aptitude for all craftsmanship. And the purpose of these God-given abilities was so that they, with skilled hands, would make all the things stipulated to Moses. In order for these things to be made, these men had to know how to engage in things like carpentry, smelting, molding and sculpting, embroidery, sewing, and tailoring, just to name a few. These were all various forms of craftsmanship, craftsmanship that are, by and large, mechanized today, but required skilled hands back then. And the ability that God gave to these men was, again, a form of wisdom. Now, it's not my intention to argue that talent is equivalent to wisdom, in every instance that it's discussed in the Bible. Nor is it my intention to point out every example of talent that we can find in the Bible. But I do want you to see that there are examples of talent in the Bible. Again, the Bible may not use the word talent the way we do. But I hope that I've shown you that talent is described in the Bible. But a question to ask now is, so what? What does talent have to do with the Christian life? Why should a Christian pursue talent? Now, if you didn't notice, this question makes an assumption. And the assumption is that Christians should pursue talent. And I believe that the assumption is correct because Christians should pursue talent. But why? Well, first, let me be clear what I mean by the pursuit of talent. The pursuit of talent is essentially the pursuit of excellence. It is the effort to be as skilled and as proficient as one can possibly be in any particular task that God calls you to. And so, if you're a janitor, then you should strive to take care of the facilities with skill and excellence. If you work at In-N-Out, then you should strive to take orders, cut fries, and flip burgers with skill and excellence. And if we snicker at the idea of a fast food employee being talented at their work, then that portrays not only our misunderstanding of talent, but also that we show contempt for people who don't possess the skills that we personally value. And if it hasn't occurred to any of us by now, that's us, that's a problem. Talent is not just the flashy skills that we pay to go see in a stadium. Talent is also in the unseen things, the mundane things. It's demonstrated in the people who produce our food. It's demonstrated in our transportation workers. Talent is demonstrated in those who render good service, because again, talent is not a superpower. It's a skilled ability. And not all talent looks the same or requires the same level of skill. To get back to our question, the first reason for why the Christian should pursue talent is simply because it enables us to serve others well. When it comes to our work and the service that we render to others, There are various principles that we can derive from Scripture. But a guiding principle that should be tied to our wrist and written on our foreheads is the fact that in our service to others, we are actually serving Christ. This is something that the Apostle Paul impressed on the various Christian slaves that he came into contact with. And it should be noted that Paul wasn't distracted by the fact that many of his recipients that he wrote to were indeed slaves. There's a historical fallacy committed by many Americans in our day, and it's the fallacy that thinking that slavery is the original sin of America's founders. The fact of the matter is that slavery goes back to a time immemorial, and it was certainly a reality in Paul's day. And to these slaves, Paul says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serving the Lord Christ now it's not my intention to exposit this passage or to deal with any difficulties that one might have with it my intention is simply to point out the principle pertaining to service as Paul addressed these Christian slaves he was likely aware of the types of services that they had to render they were likely engaged in menial tasks like washing feet, waiting on guests, cleaning household, and, and so on. And just like today, these tasks are not seen as glamorous. But, the, but to these slaves, Paul urges them to engage in such things with sincerity of heart. To engage in these things heartily. To engage in these things conscious of the fact that their service should be done well. But why? Because ultimately, they were serving Christ, their true master. And by extension, we who are servants of Christ should want to serve others well too. And such service entails the pursuit of excellence. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be trying to be good at things for vanity's sake. We shouldn't be motivated or preoccupied with looking good in front of others so that we can amass praises for ourselves. We should pursue excellence so that we can render service that will be beneficial for others. Years ago, there was a brother who attended our church. As some of you may know. His name is Calvin Hu. Now, I wasn't necessarily his closest friend, but he certainly blessed me from afar. A while back, he and a group of other talented musicians took it upon themselves to use their abilities to bless the church. Sometime around the holidays, they would put together these beautiful musicals to play for the church. And during a service around that time of the year, they would fill the air with, with melodies from fancy instruments like cellos. And Violins, xylophones, the sounds that they produced were something that inspired wonder and awe for me. And as I think back on those things, it reminds me that God is not just concerned with the moral and the functional. As we saw with the priestly garments in Exodus chapter 28, God is also concerned with glory and beauty. To be real, I don't remember half the musicians who played those instruments. For whatever reason, I only remember Calvin. But there's two things that I believe, and one thing that I'm absolutely confident of. I believe that all of those musicians rendered service in faith, knowing that as they used their God-given talents for our encouragement, they were ultimately serving Christ, But one thing that I'm confident of is that even though I don't remember their names, Christ does. And if they did it for him, which I truly believe they did, then he was truly honored by the use of their talent. And this is instructive for us as we consider the topic of talent for our own lives. Talent is not something that's only characteristic of extracurricular activity. And as we said before, it's not restricted to the more noticeable things that we might pay for. It's not restricted to particular vocations or job titles. You can demonstrate talent in whatever it is that God has given you to do. Some of us are skilled hairstylists. And so when a client comes to you, you serve them by applying your skills to the, the appearance of their hair. Some of us have experience in food service and preparation, and you play a crucial role in the lives of your customers when they come to you for that service. And while your skills may not always be the most sought-out talent, people nevertheless rely on you to be skilled at what you do. And if you do a sloppy job, you'll hear about it. This much is demonstrated in Yelp reviews, right? If you're a barista and you serve a terrible cold brew with a cold attitude, you'll hear about it. And if you're, if you're a hairstylist and you take off an inch more than what you desired or, than, or more than what they desired, you can't control Z that, right? Those people are depending on you to do your job well. And if you're inattentive, sloppy, and unprofessional, then again, you'll hear about it. And so will everyone else. But the reason we should be good at whatever it is that we do is not because we're merely trying to avoid negative reviews. We should want to serve our fellow men the best way we can because that service will be examined before the Bema Seat of Christ. And I believe that part of how our service will be judged will be based on how well we sought to serve others. Did we pursue excellence when we were serving others? Or were we careless? The other reason we should seek to be talented is because it affords other opportunities. Earlier in our time together, we read a proverb that said, a man who is skilled in his work will stand before kings. And while it isn't always the case, the Bible records many times when faithful and skilled men are not only given a standing before important people, but also are afforded opportunity to serve God in other ways, sometimes in extraordinary ways. When we look at the initially tragic story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis, we read of various times that his aptitude elevated him above his peers. Shortly after Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, He was brought down to the land of Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 39, we read that he was purchased by a captain of Pharaoh's guard. For those of us familiar with the story, the man who purchased Joseph was named Potiphar. And the reason this man's name is so familiar familiar to many of us is not because he was all that significant to the story, but because his cougar wife would cause Joseph a lot of grief later in the story. But before any of that happened, Joseph was put to work by his new master. And we're told that as Joseph rendered service, the Lord was with him. And what that meant was that whatever Joseph was tasked with, he did it well. He did it with excellence. He rendered service in a way that was satisfactory to his master. Later, we're told that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed. Now, we don't know what Joseph was tasked with. For all we know, he could have been tasked with cleaning up after the camels or something like that. But whatever it was, Joseph did it well. He showed that he had aptitude. Whatever he was tasked with, he did it with skill. In fact, he showed so much promise that he was even promoted to manage all of the captain's possessions. Now, even though the things didn't go so well for Joseph in his new management position, this pattern of success seemed to characterize him wherever he was. Shortly after being framed by Potiphar's wife, Joseph found himself in prison. And apparently, while Joseph was in that prison, he was put to another form of labor. Now, again, we don't know what job that Joseph was assigned to. And apparently, in the mind of God, it didn't matter. But whatever it was, it was a task in which Joseph demonstrated himself to be competent and reliable. We read that Joseph was so successful that the prison guard eventually put him in charge of every other prisoner in the cell block. Again, we see this pattern of success. Whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it successful. Now, at this point, some of us may protest and say, wait a minute. Right? Wasn't Joseph successful because God made him successful? Isn't there some divine intervention here that sets it apart from the norm? That's the question we're asking then it shows that we don't understand the interplay or perhaps we're not aware of the interplay between human activity and divine providence. The presence of the Lord with Joseph doesn't suggest anything supernatural. When we read that God was with Joseph and made him successful, it simply means that God exercised favorable providence in these seasons of his life. And as a result, the strivings of Joseph were turned into works of grace, works of success. But notice that Joseph worked. God's favor toward success was upon what Joseph did, what he actively did. This doesn't suggest that Joseph was a passive recipient of success. On the contrary, Joseph applied himself, or as Joseph applied himself, God established the works of his hands. And as Joseph applied himself with excellence in that prison, he was in a position to be used by God in the more extraordinary ways. We remember that Joseph would go on to interpret dreams that eventually brought him into the service of Pharaoh. And from there, Joseph forecasted a great time of plenty and a great time of famine. And by Joseph's foresight and advice. Pharaoh was able to store up food and ration it so that people wouldn't starve during that season of want. And among the people who were spared from starvation were the very ones who sold him into slavery. Now, while this isn't the main point of the story, a theme that we see in this story is that Joseph was a man who being skilled in his work stood before kings. And standing before the king of his day, he was able to be used of God to preserve the descendants of Abraham, who would eventually become as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And through this preservation, the world would eventually receive the Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that God will use every one of us in the same exact way. Admittedly, that's quite an extraordinary story. But you never know what opportunities will open up for you when you apply yourself with excellence. When you and I display excellence in our work, people are more willing to hear about what drives us. When we're skilled and faithful and reliable, it shows the world that Christianity is not all talk. When we're talented, It gives us clout and shows that the faith can actually contribute value to to the material world. Now, I know that some of us are a little platonic in our Christian persuasion. And we have this vague idea that the only issues of life that are worthwhile are the internal, moral, and spiritual. But I'd like to remind all of us that God created a physical earth. And though it has fallen, he sent his son into this physical world. And his son lived a physical life, died a physical death, and rose for the benefit of physical people. And when we are glorified, the whole physical cosmos will be redeemed with us. That being said, let the faith we profess to drive us have a tangible effect on how we render service in this world. That is how men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven as a result of us still being here. Now, the last question I want us to explore in our time together is hopefully a more practical one. And the question is, how should a Christian use talent? Or to put it in the framework of our series, how should a Christian steward his or her talent. To guide us in this consideration, I propose two qualities that should shape how we steward our talent. And these qualities are humility and love. Now, the reason I propose humility is because if we have a biblical worldview, we'll recognize that we have not and we do not acquire anything in and of ourselves and by ourselves. As a check to their pride and smugness, Paul asked the members of the Corinthian church the following rhetorical question. He asked, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? This is a question that we would all do well to ask ourselves every now and then. And as it pertains to our consideration of how to steward our talents, it is very instructive. Since we have our talents from the Father of heavenly lights, then the first thing that should dawn on us is that we are not the sole ones to whom credit is due for our talent. Now, someone might object and say, well, wait a minute, I put forth the effort, I applied myself, And as a result, I have skill, I have talent, I have success. But to such a person, I would say, by the grace of God, you are what you are. You have whatever you have is from God. He gave you life. He gave you strength. He gave you the will and determination to learn your skills. He gave you the ability to retain those skills and to apply them in such a way that they are useful and excellent. To that we say, Praise God, for it is by the grace of God that we are what we are and that we have what we have. And if you have a hard time understanding this, then it shows once again that perhaps we've forgotten or we don't understand the interplay between human activity and divine providence. Yes, when we succeed, we succeed. But we must understand that God wrote it that way. And whatever strength we have is strength that God intended us to have. And in this, there is no room for smugness or pride. We're just characters in God's story. And whatever talents we have are just traits that God designed for his narrative. And so if we're talented, a humble response is not to take pride in ourselves, nor, does, nor is it to pursue false humility by denying the obvious. If we're talented, a humble response is to look up and say thank you. If we're humble, we'll also be open to learning from others where our talents lie. As we've said before, talent is not something that people are born with. Talent is developed over time. And often we we need other people to aid us in the development of our skills. And one way that we're helped in developing our skills is to give consideration to what people say. Contrary to what you might hear from some people, we should care what other people think. Now, I'm not saying this to point, uh, I'm not making this point to advocate for some type of fear of man. Ultimately, it is faithfulness to Christ that matters the most. But notice that I said that it matters the most. I'm not saying that faithfulness to Christ is the only thing that counts. It is a fallacy to believe that the only thing that matters are the intentions of the heart. And therefore, any consideration to the quality of our work or the feedback we receive is just a pursuit of vanity. In our faithfulness to Christ, we need to remember that we are still serving people. And a good servant will want to know if others find their service beneficial and helpful. Now, I'm not saying that we should hand out a survey every time (laughs) we do an act of service. That would be rather taxing and it might make others suspect of your motives. Serving is not all about our improvement. But there are ways to seek out feedback. And how we seek feedback kind of depends on the situation, And if you don't want to come off as self-seeking, the best way to get feedback is simply to listen to what people have to say. And as you do this, listen for what people are affirming about you. Listen for indirect pointers and tips for improvement. The proverb says that if you instruct a wise man, he will be wiser still and such a demonstration of wisdom requires the humility to listen to what the other person has to say. Now, the other way that we should steward our talent is in the way of love. Right? That is the more excellent way. Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And a tangible way to love our neighbor is to render good service for their benefit. What does this look like? Well, if you're an artist, you'll exercise your skill not just to create things with visual appeal for yourself and your own enjoyment, but you want to create experiences for, for others to enjoy, for them to have joy. If you're a dentist... You're not just scraping teeth to pay off the amount of school debt you've incurred, right? You're, you're, You're providing care for one of the most used organs of another person's body. And when we engage in these things with skill and excellence, we are loving our neighbor. Because in the pursuit of excellence, we're providing the maximum benefit to other people. There's a book that John Piper wrote some time ago, and it was titled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And as we consider the topic of our uh, message tonight, this is true of many of us, right? Many of us are not professionals. And regardless of what our skills are, we are not called to perfectionism. But in our service to Christ, why not try to be the best that we possibly can be? A while ago, my wife and I, we went to uh, Disney World. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me among all of the things that the park had to offer were, of all things, the cast members who worked there. They were so polite. They were very courteous. They anticipated my needs and ensured that I had a good time. They provided excellent customer service like I've never seen before. And that's how they're trained, right? They're trained to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Disney. When they put on that uniform, they bear a world-renowned name. For the Christian, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, As Christians, we bear a name that's above the name of Disney. As Christians, we bear a name that is above every other name. And more than the cast members of Disney, we should want to represent the name that we bear with excellence. And so, at the end of the day, it is for Christ's sake that a Christian should pursue excellence. Please pray with me. Our Father, we know that the light of your revelation shines upon this topic of talent rather dimly. And so, whatever is still hidden, we ask that by the wisdom of your spirit, in concert with the principles of your written word, you would clarify what is still obscure. In any case, we pray that we would seek to represent your name well and to make good use of the abilities that you've given us. We ask for these things for the sake of your name. Amen.